Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Today, we are very honored to have with us Dr. Michael Hoffman. Dr. Michael Hoffman obtained his medical degree at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. He completed a neurological subspecialty training in stroke from Columbia University in New York City and uh, his neurology board certification in South Africa. Dr. Hoffman's greatest passions is connecting overall brain health with physical exercise and its multitude of benefits in addition to his five brain fitness rules. A strong believer in leading by example, he implements a variety of physical activity, including regular kayaking, swimming, biking, and marathon racing into his overall health regimen to keep his brain and body healthy. From completing the Ironman Triathlon 70.3 in 2010 to being appointed to the U.S. Marathon Kayak Team in 2003 and marathons in between, Dr. Hoffman practices what he preaches in connecting his physical health with his neurological health and doing all that to engage his patients and show them what's possible. Uh, Without further ado, uh, let's welcome Dr. Michael Hoffman. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks for setting it up and the invitation. We're really excited to learn from you and to hear about your experience using vagus nerve stimulation in your practice. We know that you you have a bit of a unique practice having been uh, with the VA for some time and then having kind of progressed through uh, your neuro practice as well. So very briefly, can we have a bit of an introduction to how you practice, where you practice, and uh, the types of conditions and patients that you work with? Yes. So I was originally trained as a stroke neurologist. um, And then afterwards, I I never stopped doing that. I became a cognitive and behavioral neurologist as well. And I've had about 15 years uh, experience with the VA systems in Tampa and Orlando. And I liked working there because I saw a lot of unique uh, patients that you otherwise do not see. You know, the the military get exposed to all sorts of strange things, both physical, neurotoxicological and other. And they sustain a lot of physical trauma. And of course, amongst those traumas are head injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. I I don't think I've ever seen a case of mild traumatic brain injury or concussion that has not had a significant headache component with it. And these are particularly refractive. And I've had experience with Gamma Core now for about five years because the VA system was the first to to use it, uh, to the best of my knowledge. And they're still the predominant user, I understand. And I found it remarkably effective in treating refractory migraines where a lot of medications and things like Botox fail. And so I continued recommending it um, over the months and years. And I literally found more and more people had a, a very good response. I often used it in the clinical setting and people would tell me within five, 10 minutes, oh, my migraine's gone. You know, I was increasingly impressed by it and I shared it with my colleagues at the time and when I was chief, I had about nine or ten neurologists with me, and uh, most of them started using it. So we were we were very avid users for a couple of years. I since uh, officially retired from the VA because I wanted to concentrate more on research and teaching. And the way I practice now is part-time faculty at uh, UCF, University of Central Florida. I also I'm the medical director for the Roskamp Institute in Sarasota, which is a lot of high-end neurological research. They have multi-million dollar grants on Alzheimer's traumatic brain injury and and, uh, neurotoxicological conditions. Then I have my own part-time practice, and I'm also affiliated with a number of groups, and you might find this interesting. I recently affiliated with the Low Carb USA Society based in San Diego, and they're big promoters of the low-carb diet and ketogenic-type diet neurological disease. And I actually gave a talk for them at their Boca 
Raton conference one week ago, and I drew up the similarities between the multiple different effects of the ketogenic type of diet, of which there's several, and the effects of uh, non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation. They, ha- they both have anti-inflammatory effects. They stabilize the neuronal networks. They have neurotransmitter perturbations. They stabilize cortical spreading depression, et cetera. So there's many, many similarities, and both of them are remarkably effective in a number of neurological disorders. We've discussed that many times on on this podcast. Uh, Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, the parallels. You're speaking to the choir here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't always know who the choirs are. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. But, um, I mean, it's good that we communicate in various ways like this because otherwise, how would we know? Yeah. Anyway, a nutritional advice like the keto-type diet and uh, non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation, why don't we hear much more about them? Well, especially with diet and exercise, nobody seems to make much money out of it, so you haven't got representatives running around promoting it. And that's part of the problem, of course. But there are societies like the Metabolic Health Society. Are you aware of it? I've heard of it, yes. You know, and who who do this uh, basically for free, and which is a great thing. And that that's why I'm very happy to do these podcasts, you know, because we need to get this message out. I know that's a, a brief intro into my experience. With it. I've, I've probably had experience of many hundreds of patients who've been given gamma core devices so far. And I estimated about an 80% success rate overall. Wow, it's wonderful. In your hands, that's quite uh, quite dramatic. Yeah, let's dive into the science a little bit. I'm I'm so happy to hear that you're you're uh, very interested in research and that you're part of what you do is research. And of, of yes. course, also the fact that your background is in stroke, which is also an area where we've done a lot of research and are actively doing right. clinical work. But let's start out with, you know, the the general belief. If you talk to most of your colleagues in headache neurology is that headache is a consequence of neurotransmitter imbalance, and it's primarily an electrical phenomenon. Whereas um, if you talk to immunologists or you talk to, well, frankly, patients, they often will describe their headaches as being associated with something else, as you said, like a head injury, or associated with an inflammatory condition, I'll tell you one brief anecdote, which is that um, I was at a headache meeting and was approached by a gastroenterologist. He's actually the chairman of the Department of Gastroenterology at the Royal Free Hospital in London. And he came to me and he said he wanted to use vagus nerve stimulation to treat his gastroparesis patients. And I said, we don't have a label for that. We have a label in headache. Would you find out which of your patients have headaches? And he, he said, I don't know. I I never asked him about their headaches. And I said, well, it might be interesting if you did. And he called me on the phone two weeks later and he said, I'm embarrassed to tell you that half my patients who have gastroparesis, when they come to see me on the eighth floor, they've either just come from or are just going to after that meeting to the 11th floor to manage their headaches with the neurologist because it's a very high comorbidity. And of course- he, he believes that headaches were, you know, associated, therefore, with the cause of their gastroparesis, which could either be inflammatory, traumatic, or associated with metabolic disorder. So it ties in with the, the metabolic health that you were talking about as well. You know, there's some very, very interesting concepts that have emerged just in the last few years. For example, um, the psychiatrists have stumbled on the fact that there may well be a common P factor, P standing for psychopathology factor. You seem to have heard about the soup. A little bit, bit, yes. Guys, the guys are really switched on. Thank you. (laughs) It's wonderful to to hear that you've heard about the psychopathology factor. So that if you have one psychiatric uh, disease or condition, rather, because they're not always diseases, there's sometimes it's good to be, but and schizophrenic and autistic because you, you may excel at certain things, like Turing. You know, he saved two million, 2 million people's lives and no, he saved 14 million lives, it's estimated, and shortened the war by about two years. So that's something that's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. And that's because he had these autistic tendencies. Anyway, 
If you have one condition, you're likely to have two, three, or even four others because they're all kind of linked together. Yes. Now, it doesn't stop there. If you have migraine, migraineurs have many other, they probably have conditions of most organs in the brain. It's psychiatric, gastro, any, you know, you name it, it's there. We actually did a study back in 2015, 2016, over in the UK. So I, yeah. I, at the time, was very interested in the cost of how, how much headache patients cost. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of the fact that headache patients were very expensive, especially if they had comorbidities. There was a paper that had been written in the early 2000s by a group out of California that looked at psychiatric conditions and how much more expensive they were when headache and migraine were present as well. And so I went to the UK and worked with a group of uh, clinical pharmacists who went into the uh, electronic medical records of practices and produced for me a spreadsheet of about 50 patients who were severe headache sufferers. And they gave me the entirety of their profiles, that all the medications they were on, all the, all the times they had been to the doctor, all the diagnostic codes that had been written on them. And what I found was that they were virtually identical people. So what we did was a, a study of about 150,000 patients looking at all of their diagnostic codes, all the medications that they had been prescribed over about a 20-year period in about a dozen practices. And what we found was that there are a group of people who suffer with, on average, three or more of a group of six or seven conditions that included depression and anxiety as one condition, so, so psychiatric conditions, headache, sleep disorders, uh, gastric motility problems, asthma and allergy, and widespread pain. And when we looked at those six conditions, and again, we found that there was a subset of patients, about 10 to 12% of the population, who suffered with multiple ones of these problems. And we then confirmed this with a study at the CPRD database, which is 6 million patients in, uh, in the UK, followed by a 100 million patient study in the United States using the Truven database. And the data that we produced showed that when you call each one of these separate symptom sets a separate condition, you're making a mistake. They are not separate conditions. They are actually symptoms of one underlying systemic problem, which appears to be an autonomic nervous system dysfunction. In fact, we did the latent causation analysis and showed that all of these symptoms, when they show up in patients, are oftentimes tied to the same underlying vagalopathy and that it's actually the, the parasympathetic nervous system that's deficient in these patients. They're in sympathetic overdrive. And oftentimes, it all originates at one time in their lives. They either had a trauma, they had an emotionally traumatic event or a physically traumatic event, a surgery, uh, an infection or something that triggers this. It's almost as if their bodies get stuck or their, their immune systems, because there's also a, a strong immune system component to this, they get stuck in that state and they can't break out of it. And vagus nerve stimulation appears to be very beneficial across the board in treating all of these symptoms. The number one message that you get back from these patients is, you've given me my life back. So I think that goes exactly along with what you're talking about this this uh, you know panoply of psychiatric conditions that all appear sort of simultaneously in these patients. Not only psychiatric, but all neurological, and of course the metabolic syndromes as well. And you know others others have taken the stance that this is all ultimately due to one thing again, which is a mitochondrial failure. <laughs> and the interesting fact, uh, so I'm certain that through your studies, you're, you become familiar with the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, which yes. is activating the vagus nerve, causes the release of acetylcholine. The acetylcholine binds to the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on monocytes and macrophages and downregulates their inflammatory state. But more recently, there has been a discovery that there's an alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on mitochondria, and that there's in fact two pathways by which that the presence of that receptor on the mitochondria themselves 
saves the mitochondria, preserves them. One is through preventing the mitochondria from releasing or dumping their DNA, which activates the sting pathway and other pathways to cause uh, apoptosis. But the other is through regulating calcium levels because cytochrome C, which is an electron transport protein, normally associates with uh, cardiolipin in mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And when calcium levels rise to a high enough level, that disrupts that association and the cytochrome C leaks out. And that then leads to, at the endoplasmic reticulum, a release of more calcium. So it's this sort of feed forward loop that ends up causing mitochondrial dysfunction as well. In both cases, the activation of that alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on the mitochondria is a cell-preserving and mitochondrial function-preserving action. And of course, when mitochondria become dysfunctional, oxidative phosphorylation and the entire energy production of the cell gets hindered and broken down. And as a result, cells have to rely only on glycolysis. And that's a very inefficient means of, of creating energy, which is why the liver starts to produce more glucose because there's this signal that says, hey, the cells are starving. They need more glucose. So it's, as you said, it ties into the metabolic systems and how, the, how both cellular and systemic metabolism function. This is explanatory yeah. to show why the ketogenic style diets work in a very similar fashion to vagus nerve stimulation. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're aware of that book. It was released just three, four months ago called Brain Energy. No, I haven't read that. Yeah, this is very well worth reading. He's he's a very astute Harvard psychiatrist, a, a very young man still, in his formative years, who wrote a remarkably good book. And, you know, he takes, a, he, he opens up, you know, a lot of us clinicians, our, our entire careers were often triggered by seeing one particular patient that was particular, was very interesting, and as was mine, as was his. And he had a man of 30, uh, of 30 something years of age who was bipolar and schizophrenic, and he failed 17 different medications. And when he put him on the ketogenic diet on, in desperation, he was completely cured. And then he went down the path. He's a he, he's also a PhD trained uh, uh, scientist, and he particularly studied mitochondria. And he says, like his predecessor, I think his name, uh, I'm blocking on his name, but in 2017, a psychiatrist from UPenn made the statement that all psychiatric diseases are due to mitochondrial failure. And because there's no distinction between psychiatry and neurology, you can say the same thing that all neurological diseases are ultimately brain energy failure due to mitochondrial disease. So that's a, another kind of unifying concept that's, that's come to the fore recently, which I find very, very interesting. And, you know, when I treat migraine patients, I tell them, look, to take the pain away is just one thing, but ultimately we have to get at the root cause of this. That your brain is failing. It's it's got an energy failure, and why is that? What is it that's causing? Now, humans as a species, our brains are running flat out all the time. We had a very critical level where just a few things like air pollution, weather changes, psychological stress tips the balance of our brain. Then our brain energy fails, and the first thing that happens usually is a migraine. Now, to shoot the messenger is the wrong approach. 100%. That's what we're doing with drugs. And I think that there's a very important tie between the the metabolism of cells and the overall systemic metabolism that you're talking about, the brain energy and mitochondrial dysfunction, and the activation state of microglial cells. The microglial cells. You know, if you go back, we talk about this a lot, but if you go back to the very earliest stages of, of gestation, literally just days after conception, it's a, an invasion, if you will, of macrophages from the yolk sac that come into the neural tube and literally 
coordinate and action, uh, you know, take the actions to build the brain. Everything from the vasculature to the long axonal structures to the local uh, organization of neurons, uh, causing them to migrate into the right position, synaptogenesis, synaptic pruning, all of those things are entirely the responsibility of microglial cells. To say that the brain is an immune organ is not an overstatement. In fact, it's probably an understatement. And the role that microglial cells play in even the health of mitochondria, apparently most recently, I've been, we've been working with uh, a, a researcher in microglial cell, what microglial cells do. One of the tasks that they do is actually to take up dysfunctional microglial, uh, mitochondria from neurons and replace them. So there's, a, there's an exchange of mitochondria that takes place within the brain between neurons and astrocytes and oligodendrocytes and my, microglial cells. And the microglial cells actually, when they become dark and filled with dysfunctional mitochondria, migrate to the vasculature and appear to be able to either dump the dysfunctional mitochondria into the bloodstream, and you see a concentration and a buildup of that in the, in the kidneys. So there is this attempt by the immune system to regulate that uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, to, to moderate it, to, to help cure it. But the problem is that when those microglial cells become inflamed, they stop doing the task, the housekeeping tasks to maintain homeostasis. And the older you get and the more insults you've experienced, the more those microglial cells become activated and they stop doing the homeostatic tasks that they're supposed to. So I think there's an incredible association between mitochondrial dysfunction and microglial activation into the, you know, sort of the, the traditional activation state as opposed to the active synaptic monitoring and homeostatic tasks that they normally do. Yeah, I really appreciate your biochemical insights. <laughs> you have a vast, vast depth of it, don't you? <laughs> well, it's you know what it is. It's it's my engineering background. <laughs> I just think of everything as a system. So I, I'm trying to put the pieces together and understand how the system works. It's wonderful to be able to put together an engineering mind with clinical minds and to explain what's happening. But having the outcomes and and some of the case studies and stories that the clinician has. Uh, being able to explain them is is so wonderful, and that's why we love having these conversations. In stroke, I'd love to I'd love to get some experiences that you've had. Have you had the opportunity to use vagus nerve stimulation in any patients who've had either strokes or other conditions beyond cluster headache and migraine? I mean, we all, we obviously see the benefits there, but we also see benefits in you know, the psychiatric conditions, you talked about the ketogenic diet having those effects. What about vagus nerve stimulation? Have you seen everything from sleep to mood to anxiety levels, et cetera? Well, fortunately, I've, I've had a 30 plus year stroke career and I don't see many stroke patients anymore because I used to run the inpatient services. Mm -hmm. And with uh, stroke centers, you know, you're on call for, I don't know, several days a week sometimes. So I'm glad that chapter's over. But so, <laughs> yes, I, I've seen many tens of thousands of stroke patients in my life. But uh, now it's restricted to outpatient. And the answer is no, I haven't had the opportunity yet. A lot of traumatic brain injury. I'm seeing a lot of TBI people now, and many of them get the gamma core device to try. I've even had requests to try it off-label for cognition improvement, which of course is also something that, that's been explored already. Have you seen any, uh, any improvement or any changes there? Yeah, you know, many, many of my, for example, TBI patients saw in the, at the VA and also people with Gulf War illness also had this cognitive decline. Many reported to me, you know what, I, I feel my mind is better. My multitasking's improved, uh, my head's clearer. So they would, um, they would uh, relay these, these cognitive improvements to me many, many times. We've seen that also with some patients with uh, brain fog associated with long COVID. Yes, well. correct. And, and I think that that's a function of the fact that in the hippocampus, one of the roles that microglia play, again, they're 
their tasks are seemingly endless, is to regulate neurogenesis, which continues in the hippocampus, even through adulthood into old age. There's, because we can continue to learn and, and store memories and, and become smarter, if you will. What happens is you have these microglial cells that are regulating neurogenesis, uh, neuron, the new neurons migrating to the uh, right location. If they're not, they, they, get, they get phagocytized and digested away. Um, in fact, about 90% of the new neurons that are produced actually end up getting just uh, cleared out. So it's only about 10% of them that actually survive and, and move into the right location. And then lots of synapses are formed, but the ones that are active and functional remain and the ones that don't get digested away again. They're, they're, the, the microglial cells prune the network and optimize it. And if the microglial cells are not functioning properly, because they're inflamed or because they're otherwise distracted by other tasks that are uh, that are necessary through traumatic brain injury or otherwise, then they stop doing that task and they and you end up with this inability to learn, inability to focus, inability to remember things, inability to apply learning before to new problems because the microglial cells aren't doing their tasks in order to keep the network functioning properly. And the moment you can, you can bring those microglial cells back, and they all have that alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, the moment you can bring them back into that homeostatic state where they focus on their housekeeping tasks, that brain fog lifts, cognition improves, and you have this apparent increase in intelligence that, that we see. Um, and we see it not only in those situations that are sort of a, of a neurologic basis, but you also see it in situations where there's metabolic disease or depression, or they've even shown in, in patients with implantable devices for epilepsy that there's a cognitive improvement that the patients experience as a result of having those implants put in. Now, maybe you, you would be the right person to ask. I've been reading that cells have many mitochondria within many mm -hmm. powers. And, and in fact, some references state that there may be many thousands of mitochondria in one cell. And I came across one reference, and I'd like your opinion on this, that because neurons are the most active cells of all, one neuron may have up to 2 million mitochondria. Is that correct? Or is that sound well, good? It sounds like it's possible, and especially among neurons that are have very long axons, because the the, the process of maintaining the ability to fire across a very long distance, a macroscopic distance, is very energetically intensive. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising to me that there would have to be lots and lots of, of mitochondria available for to be able to support that kind of energy usage within the cell. So I think that's I think that's a lot, but I, I don't think it I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that that's that's the number. I find mitochondria to be fascinating because I actually think it's a symbiotic relationship. They have their own DNA. Their DNA actually uses a slightly different code than the rest of the DNA in the animal kingdom. And that DNA suggests, that difference suggests that they were actually a separate life form that were engulfed by uh, early you know, bacteria, et cetera, and became this symbiotic relationship where the, the larger cells were relying on glycolysis, but the, the waste matter from that gly, glycolytic uh, process became the fuel that the mitochondria used and produced ATP in excess. And so there was this, this balance. The fuel was there. The food that the mitochondria needed was there as a result of being inside the cell. And the cell wanted to keep the mitochondria alive because they got the benefit of so many more ATP per glucose molecule. So it's just, it's, it's fa they're fascinating. Are, um, are you aware of that paper in Nature one week ago where they described the, the eukaryotic cell called Escard archaea? And they described how the, the incorporation of the bacteria, would, which is another mitochondria, took place because they had these very fancy pseudopodia. There's a very interesting paper in Nature describing how this could all have happened and nice demonstration of it. I think that's fascinating. I'd love to read that. I haven't had the chance to read that. It's, it's the same thing is true of chloroplasts too. 
I mean, it's that, that same relationship between plant cells and the chloroplast. Of course, plant cells also have mitochondria, but the ability to produce the glucose was also came about as a result of chloroplast being uh, uh, incorporated into plant cell, uh, into the plant cell itself. Now, I didn't know that. So plants have chloroplasts, which are basically the same thing as a mitochondria, and they have mitochondria. Yeah, well, the chloroplasts create the glucose and the mitochondria use the out, I guess, the fuel that is left over from glycolysis inside the cell. They also have mitochondria. So yes, mitochondria exist in all cells and plant cells have chloroplasts to create the glucose that's used. But that sounds like a great article. I look forward to getting that and, uh, sure. and reading it. So getting back to the clinical side of things, um, mm -hmm. in your patients, you know, we've talked about the fact that when they have headache or they have psychiatric conditions, they oftentimes have physical conditions too that are related. We believe that they're related. When you've had patients, for example, who have uh, type 2 diabetes and headache, have you seen an improvement in those peripheral symptoms in parallel with the, with the improvement that they're getting in their neurologic function? And maybe you're not aware because you're not asking them about that, but we've, we've seen patients who are type 2 diabetic, all of a sudden their HbA1Cs drop from you know, 8 to 6 or 8 to 5 or things like that, and their blood pressure, if they have hypertension, comes down. Have you seen any of those or have you had the opportunity to ask your patients about those? The most common thing people complain about is, is uh, concomitant fatigue slash fibromyalgic syndromes. And yes, those improve too. Yeah. That's, there's actually a paper that was conducted by a, a group out of New Jersey used implanted vagus nerve stimulators to treat fibromyalgia with remarkable benefits. It was a small pilot study, but as the authors said, it was the first time they'd ever seen a treatment literally make a person who had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia no longer meet the criteria for fibromyalgia. So it literally, yeah. quote unquote, cured them. So very exciting opportunities. Have you done anything or looked into the research around uh, CGRP and how vagus nerve stimulation impacts uh, calcitonin gene-related peptide, which of course is all the rage among headache neurologists with the antibodies that are out there. Have you looked into how vagus nerve stimulation might modulate uh, CGRP? No, I mean, that's a pretty much a basic science endeavor, which, which I'm not involved in. Uh, but I'd be very interested to hear more about it if you know something about it. I, well, we did some work back a few years ago, and there was actually just a paper last year that was published out of Harvard showing that the cells that produce CGRP in the central nervous system, obviously the, 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 the drugs are designed to either block the CGRP receptor or to, after the CGRP is released, to bind to it to prevent it from having its activity. But what, they, what the research seems to show is that the production of CGRP and the release of CGRP from those cells is downregulated by uh, vagus nerve stimulation. We're still trying to figure out exactly how it works, but I think it has to do with the level of inflammation dropping in the, in the central nervous system and, and that inflammation is really the trigger for the CGRP release. But I was just wondering whether or not you had patients who were failing CGRP antibody therapies um, who gained benefit from from vagus nerve stimulation? Yes, that I've seen. That I've seen quite often. And in fact, you know, most people most people who have these comorbidities are also on multiple medications, and no one more than a military person who's had spinal injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and they they may have a dozen or one and a half dozen medications on board, and the last thing they want is another medication. And so when you give them the option of a non-invasive vagal nerve stimulator, they immediately are very interested and they'll try it. And so, so a lot of, lot of people I've seen, they, they are no longer in the mood for any more medications. Right. 
they're on medications just to cover up the side effects of other medications. Exactly. Have you seen have you seen those patients be able to wean themselves off other medications that they were taking? Because we've seen that in the in the studies that we did over in the UK in these patients who had multiple symptoms. We saw patients who were able to, you know, no longer need steroid injections, no longer need, you know, some of their metformin. Some of them uh, were able to downregulate the use of SSRIs and SNRIs, et cetera. I've seen many who just decided to stop everything cold turkey and improve. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> that's a pretty bold statement, but I love to hear that. Oh, yeah. um, it's uh it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable therapy, no question. I wish I wish I could say in advance of of being involved in it that I knew that it was gonna be that way, but yes. it's just been an incredible opportunity to open presents. Every every other month, it seems like we're opening a new present because we find out that it does something good. So we're we're always excited to hear about that. Any mm-hmm. any special stories that you have of patients that were really remarkable, where there is either, you know, a a great heartwarming story or a uh you know something that you hadn't expected and you saw it happen that was uh, was really interesting. Not not offhand with vagal nerve stimulation. I've I've had many many dozens of people tell me that you know the response has been eighty and ninety percent almost immediately. That I've heard a lot. What and just to go back to the low carb keto type diet, I've also had many experiences there that people that followed that, I probably have about half a dozen people who have lost 100 pounds or more within six months. Wow. Six months to a year sometimes, 100 pounds. And of course, many of their problems disappeared as well during that time. And as we said, you know, the ketogenic type diet and, and vagal nerve stimulation have many similarities of, of action and so I just wanted to integrate those two because, you know, I have to tell people what's and what can work for you because they not only have migraines, but they're overweight too. Yeah. We've got to fix both at the same time. Right. And so, yeah, the stories are interrelated. Wow. It was very refreshing. Sorry. It was very refreshing to hear from, from you directly that you're addressing that root cause. You really do want to find out what's causing the symptoms in the first place, not just suppress symptoms, which uh, is very much a functional approach. It's the approach that I take in practice as well. And so it was really refreshing to hear that and and to point to the fact that when people become healthier, when they uh, fix up their diet, when they address their nutrition, when they address their inflammatory triggers, the uh, conditions tend to disappear and go away. And these, these patients are able to live their lives much more effectively after that. In in the case of the ketogenic diet, of course, there's a change in calorie intake as a result. Typically, I'm we've talked about this on the podcast on previous episodes. The fact that you know everything that you eat either boils down to a protein, a carbohydrate, or a fat. And if you look at at what the immune system's response is to each of those types of food, it's pretty dramatic when you see that. Proteins will cause a small transient increase in inflammatory cytokine levels uh, in the bloodstream, but it's, it's, it's negligible. Fats actually produce zero increase in inflammatory uh, signaling, whereas carbohydrates drive a very strong and prolonged increase in inflammatory markers in the bloodstream and systemically. And so I, I think it's it's interesting to see the tie-in between the metabolism, both systemically and at the cellular level, and inflammatory signaling, because I think those two are very related to one another. And the fact that they disrupt neurotransmitter signaling in the central nervous system, you know, there's always this debate in neurology, at least as I've seen it, between the excitatory inhibitory neurotransmitter balance as the cause of epilepsy or migraine or depression or frankly any any number of different neurologic conditions versus the argument that it's caused by inflammation and i don't see those two things as being separate from one another because we know that inflammation causes a disruption 
in neurotransmitter synthesis and neurotransmitter transport. So as a result, they're really two sides of the same coin. But systemically, outside of the brain, it seems like there's the opportunity to to use either the ketogenic diet or uh, vagus nerve stimulation to accomplish very similar things. My question, you know, I always tell people that vagus nerve stimulation is is with great power comes great responsibility. You are going to gain a uh, an ability to lose weight more effectively, but you're actually also going to gain the ability to gain weight more efficiently if you don't regulate your diet and regulate your exercise accordingly. Have you seen, the, the way you've seen people lose weight with the ketogenic diet, have you seen that also with vagus nerve stimulation? No, I haven't used vagus nerve stimulation for that at all at this stage. Okay. But I'd like to ask you a question in turn, if you don't mind. Sure. There's another big international organization called the Nutrition Network based in Cape Town, South Africa, okay. with Tim Noakes in charge. And Tim Noakes wrote a very interesting book called The Law of Nutrition, where he basically takes on the legal profession or with the with the help of the legal profession, he took on the dietary dietary uh, uh, institution in that country, and and won the case. And in his in his book, he made a statement that the human body has no need for carbohydrate. That's true. Is that true? That is true. In fact, there's a great TED talk by, and I believe he may be a South African or an Australian. I apologize. I don't always get that accent right. Um, when I hear it, but a, a brilliant, a brilliant man. He's been involved in many really iconoclastic research projects. But he highlights the fact that in the United States in the 1960s, when there was this uh, U.S. government push to change the diets of yeah. people in the United States at a time when obesity was at three percent, and you know heart disease was present but nowhere near in the epidemic portions it is now. There was a push to change the diet, and it turns out that the, the, that the Senate in the United States pushed a, a, or promoted the new health standards for diet, and it was written, those dietary guidelines were written by an, a vegan who had no experience and no training in nutrition or science of any kind. That it's really a political argument. And and what we've seen is, and I think this is, you know, this ties into so many different things. It ties into the obesity epidemic. It ties into the the neurological or the epidemic of autism and schizophrenia. That what we have right now is a processed food industry in the United States that is in the process of stripping out all of the fats and replacing them with carbohydrates and typically simple carbohydrates because they want people to become addicted to the food. And so as a result, what we have is a a world uh, or a, a country that is being pumped with carbohydrates and simple carbohydrates that are causing inflammation. And as a result, that systemic inflammation leads to the neurological problems that you've talked about the, the the concomitant or the associated uh, metabolic problems, pain problems, peripheral issues, cardiovascular issues. It's all because, or not all, but in, in many regards, it is being exacerbated by this change and push to more carbohydrates versus simple fats and and protein, which is of course the ketogenic diet. So one of the one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast that I find really terrifying is, and it goes back to a paper that was written in 2011 by the late Paul Patterson out of, uh, out of California, uh, the Caltech. And what he wrote back in 2011 was that, that the science was now confirmed that if we were to reduce inflammation caused by infection, and viral, bacterial, or parasitic infection during pregnancy that greater than 30% of all schizophrenia cases would be eliminated. 
And the problem is that during pregnancy, inflammation, higher levels of inflammation in the mother are related to and, and actually caused, there's animal models that show it, will lead to the offspring exhibiting uh, schizophrenia and autism at, at, at nearly as, at astronomical levels. And so, and that's not just behaviorally, they've gone and patho pathophysiologically looked at the brain structures and showed that it's, it's the same problems, depending on when you have that, that experience of the inflammation in the pregnant mother. So when I think about what we're doing with diet and the inclusion of carbohydrates in the diet and what that's doing to our pregnant women and what it's doing to their offspring, and we think about the, the skyrocketing levels of autism. I mean, autism is now uh, one in 30 boys is being born with autism or being born and diagnosed by five years old with autism. And the, the problems of mental health, ranging from whether it's mass shootings or homelessness, the problems of schizophrenia are, I think, a ticking time bomb right now for our future. And the only way to address it is to immediately find ways to reduce the inflammation that, uh, even if it's just to guide pregnant women to a ketogenic diet, even if that's all we do, we need to do something because it's terrifying. Yeah, we need to have all of these podcasts, I think. 100%. We have to educate the educators. Yeah, that's happening. There are there are institutions out there that are really working to get this info out. There are individuals that are podcasting quite a bit that I'm a big proponent of. The the key here is is driving towards a whole foods diet where nutrition is above all the most important aspect of of what we're taking in, not allowing that dopamine reaction of these hyperpalatable foods to drive our food-based decisions or nutritional decisions. The immediate stopping of a hyper-processing of all of our foods to become dopaminergic in their balance. And what, it, what this processing is all doing is it's destroying the soil that our whole foods are coming from. The soil quality that we have in, in 2022, 2023 is absolutely atrocious compared to where we were even 50, 70 years ago. We've destroyed the nutritional capacity of these, these uh, plant foods, the, the foods that the animals are eating, the foods that we then are also consuming. The, the nutrient status has come down. And that includes not just macros, that we're talking on the micro side as, as well. The micronutrients, vitamins, minerals are being depleted and they're not getting to us where we need them. They're not allowing for that inflammatory uh, control to be present. And so it's triggering this inflammatory response at the individual level on an ongoing basis. And it's there are, there are great institutions out there. The Institute for Functional Medicine is one of them that's teaching practitioners to help support uh, a whole food style diet. There's communities out there that are for practitioners. There's communities out there that are for uh, consumers themselves to help teach them how to eat more effectively to get the right nutrients in. With regards to the the question that you had on if carbohydrates are required, our cells, our human cells, do not require carbohydrates. Often, what our carbohydrates are doing is just feeding the microbiome more effectively, and that's where the fiber piece comes in. And feeding that microbiome is also that a very important piece in allowing for inflammation to either be triggered or not. And that microbiome piece is often one that's overlooked when we are uh, assessing the, the function of our overall uh, cellular function and uh, inflammatory triggers, right? The 70% of our immune cells by volume are located in the lining of the gut. And that is because when our symbiotic relationship with our microbiome is tested, and we aren't getting the short-chain fatty acid activation and the, the uh, tools that those microbiome bacteria are creating for us, and we're not providing tools for them, we lead to this uh, leaky gut syndrome or this uh, intestinal hyperpermeability syndrome, which activates the immune system and allows for these inflammatory triggers to build up within the body. That then uh, affects the vagus nerve in a very heavy way because the vagus nerve is being tasked 
with controlling inflammation at the gut at a very high toll. And so when an emotional or a stressful life event pops up, that often is a trigger to say the vagus nerve can no longer handle the inflammation. And we then end up having these conditions that are triggered in that moment. But the priming has been happening because the dietary triggers have been there for a long time. The microbiome-based dysfunction has been happening for a long time. And essentially, the cup is almost full. And that emotional or stressful life event pushes us over the edge, putting us into that inflammatory uh, activated state, allowing for symptoms of a condition to start to pick up. This is the functional approach that that I take with a lot of my patients, with all of my patients, in fact. You know, one of one of my slide captions is the human brain is really wide and running hot. And, and I, but what confuses me is it's so often stated in top neuroscience literature that the preferential that the brain preferentially wants to use glucose as its energy substrate. Now, how does that tie in? It's an easier fuel. So it's almost like an ethanol 85 type of fuel. It's easier to burn, but there's more negative effect that'll come from carbohydrate versus ketones and and fat-based fuels are much more jet fuel-like. There's very little negative effect that comes from those uh, fat-based fuels. Well, I think that confuses a lot of conditions that, but the brain needs glucose to run, you know? Yeah, yeah. glucose, glucose is, is, is a primary source of energy for every cell in the body. The interesting thing that I discovered along the way when I, when I wrote a book chapter for neuromodulation is how certain cells in your body are entirely dependent on insulin for taking up glucose. Those would be fat cells and muscle cells, for example. And then there are cells in the body that do not require insulin for the uptake of of glucose. And those are nerve cells and immune cells. And the question then arises, well, well, why is it that certain cells require insulin and other ones don't? And it comes from an evolutionary imperative. If you're walking along the savanna in, you know, 10,000 years ago, and you get attacked by hyenas and you manage to crawl up into a tree your system has to realize that it's unlikely that you are going to be able to find any food for a little while. You're going to have to sleep and and heal and restore yourself. And so what happens is the cells in your body that are under an inflammatory assault, there's obviously great levels of inflammation flowing through through your circulatory system as your immune system gets activated to heal, to, to fight infection and heal. What happens is the muscle cells and the fat cells should no longer take up glucose. There's a need for them to basically go into a a very low energy state. And so what happens is within the cell, there's a release of certain proteins called SOX proteins, S-O-C-S. It stands for suppressors of cytokine signaling. And one of the things that it does, in addition to suppressing inflammatory signaling within that cell, is it destroys the insulin receptor, effectively dismantling the internal portion of the receptor. And as a result, insulin no longer works to drive glucose into those cells. So they basically become glucose resi- or insulin resistant and glucose intolerant. They, they, they don't take up glucose. And, and at the same time that that's happening, the liver is getting signaling to upregulate the production of glucose. The reason is because your immune system and your nerve cells have to be able to continue functioning if you want to continue to live and to survive this this, this trauma. And so you have this this, complicated setup where muscle cells and fat cells cease to be able to use glucose, but there's a higher level of glucose. That higher level of glucose is actually coming not from your stomach, but it's coming from your liver. And the purpose of it is to fuel your brain and your nervous system and your immune system to heal you. All of that is what is actually happening in metabolic disease because being very overweight with hypertrophied white adipose tissue leads to an inflammatory state that mimics that same systemic inflammation that you would have in an injury. And so your body is chronically in a state of high levels of glucose being produced in the liver but your immune system and your brain are the only ones that can take it up, you end up fatigued because your muscle cells can't take the glucose up. The fat cells 
aren't taking it up anymore. It's actually a protection mechanism so that the fat cells don't get any fatter. And the only place that you can get rid of that, that glucose is by literally urinating it out from your kidneys. So you end up with high levels of glucose in your urine. All of that can be fixed if with a ketogenic diet, you're reducing the, the levels of inflammation that come from the diet or through vagus nerve stimulation. Vagus nerve stimulation has the ability to reduce that burden on, uh, of inflammation and as a result, lower the production of, of glucose from your liver. It's actually something that we've looked at in terms of treating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in NASH as well. Uh, that's what I call a very erudite explanation. Thank you. <laughs> well, I hope people no, understand it. I understand uh, it. <laughs> it's a fascinating network of, yeah, of connections. It is. Absolutely. So any other stories that you have from your experiences with the device? Any observations that we haven't talked about that, that you found fascinating and, and are either wanting to share with us or you know, are looking up why it works and how it works? Yes. One, one or two more, because of this tremendous comorbidity that we're seeing in, in patients. So it's not, it's not uncommon for me to see a young man who's been in the military, for example, who had a traumatic brain injury. But he's also got PTSD from his experiences there. Sure. He, he suffers from mild cognitive impairment because of PTSD and because of the migraines. And... I often am able to tell people, you know what, there's one device that can treat three or four of your ailments all at once. You know, it's about to be approved for PTSD, or it's fast-tracked through the FDA for PTSD. It treats the migraines. We know that it probably has a very good function on mild cognitive impairment. And so it, it's, it's very rewarding to be able to tell somebody who do not want more medications, who want to get better, that a simple thing like that, which basically has no side effects, can be very helpful. And I was able to tell that story to hundreds of people at this stage. Well, I think that message needs to get out to millions of people and ultimately to billions of people. It's, it's very gratifying as somebody who is part of the development of the, the, pro, uh, the product to hear that from you and, and hear your clinical experiences like that. Again, I wish I could say that going into it, we knew that it was going to do all this. We didn't. Um, I don't know if anybody ever told you the story of how we came upon doing this, but it was uh, the crazy opportunity. I just was sitting in, in my home office looking at some, some papers that I had found on the internet. And I, I, was, I had been told by a neurosurgeon years before that uh, anytime anybody's cut a nerve, and gained a clinical benefit from it, the opportunity to stimulate the nerve might preserve it and still gain the same benefit. And so I, uh, I was reading an article. It was a translation of an article out of the old Soviet Union. I know our listeners have heard this story a couple of times, but it's a good one. They had taken dogs and they had sensitized the dogs to hen albumin so they could cause an anaphylactic reaction. But they took some of the dogs that had been sensitized and they cut the vagus nerve right around the time that they gave the challenge. And the dogs were able to survive that had had the vagus nerve cut. The ones that had the intact parasympathetic all died. And so I said, wow, this is an opportunity for us to stimulate the nerve and see whether or not we can do the same thing. And we went to Columbia University in the very early days of 2006, and we reproduced that study, but this time using vagus nerve stimulation to treat the anaphylaxis versus cutting the vagus nerve. And we were able to save the lives of the animals that were being stimulated from what would otherwise have been a lethal uh, anaphylactic challenge. And so with that, we started looking at treating anaphylaxis and that led to asthma. We got great results in treating asthma in animal models and then in human studies. And then along the way, once it became non-invasive, we were interested in headaches because we were hearing from patients how it was treating their headaches. But so I, we just sort of fell into this and it, it grew from what was really sort of an innocent study of anaphylactic shock into what is now, it looks like it's about 95% of the different ailments that people have all have this inflammatory component that is, is present, even when it doesn't appear to have anything to do with inflammation, like depression, for example, or, or anxiety, 
it in fact does have something to do with uh, inflammation. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll share one last thing about that, which is serotonin. Uh, you know, the drugs that are being prescribed for depression are typically selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or norepinephrine, serotonin norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors, which are basically designed to prevent the reuptake of these neurotransmitters out of the synapse. Because the, the perception is that there's not enough serotonin or not enough norepinephrine and that leaving them present in the synapse longer will help mood. And that's not necessarily a wrong, wrong-headed idea. But the problem is it doesn't look to the root cause of why there's a problem. Why is there not enough serotonin? Why is the serotonin being taken up so quickly? And the answer is it's because of inflammation. There's, there's studies that have now conclusively shown that inflammation, which is the presence of things, which includes the presence of things like TNF-alpha and IL-1, disrupts the synthesis of serotonin from tryptophan. So tryptophan is the precursor molecule. It's an amino acid. It's, it's through a two-step process turned to serotonin. Interestingly, serotonin is the precursor for melatonin. And melatonin has a very important as, uh, scavenging role in mitochondria. So we get to mitochondrial dysfunction through that pathway as well. But the fact that TNF-alpha and IL-1, these cytokines of inflammation, prevent serotonin from being produced is very important for the reason why there's not enough serotonin in patients who have depression, but also have inflammation. So sometimes when you see patients who have PTSD after a traumatic brain injury, there's a heightened level of inflammation, a heightened level of microglial activation. It's disrupting their serotonin synthesis. If you can suppress the inflammation, you can improve mood. We see this with in, in rheumatoid patients, rheumatoid arthritis patients and otherwise, when they get anti-TNF-alpha drugs like Remicade and Enbrel and Humira, there oftentimes is associated with that, this sort of euphoria that they get because there's a higher level of serotonin now being produced because the inflammation levels have come down. But inflammation does one thing that's, that's really even worse. It upregulates the transporters that remove serotonin from the uh, from the, the synaptic cleft. So it's doing two things. It's blocking serotonin production and inflammation is literally a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer. It's upregulating the transporters that are pulling the serotonin out of the synapse. So if we can suppress the inflammation, we can do the same things, but do it by treating the root cause as opposed to trying to mask the symptoms or work around what's happening biologically. So it's another another erudite explanation that I must remember. <laughs> all right. Well I mean there's there's great there's great papers. I'd be happy to to share yeah. the papers. I, I, I didn't, I didn't come up with this myself. I'm 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 just reading the papers. Well so. we need to trade some papers. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. I look forward to getting that uh, that nature yes. I want to see I want to read that nature paper for sure. Absolutely. Wonderful. Dr. Hoffman, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the show. We are blessed to have you here and to share your clinical insights, your stories. So thank you so much for joining us today. Any final words, any parting words for uh, any listeners that are, are sticking to the end? I think it's a very exciting time and and um, neurological sciences and psychiatric sciences for that matter. We have so many um, non-invasive treatment options that are highly successful. We just need to market it better. We need to um, explain to people just how much scientific support there is. And where there's sparse scientific support, it's, I think it's rapidly coming. So a very exciting time for us all. And I really appreciate being invited. And I learned a lot from you. Thank you, both of you. Well, that's great. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate your uh, support. and and I personally feel that anything we can do to increase your platform to get the word out to uh, to patients and colleagues and and people who will listen I'm all for doing and I'm happy that we could help with the podcast and I look forward to uh, talking with you about some of the organizations that you mentioned uh, the metabolic yeah. organization and the nutrition organization to get the message out through their channels that as you said there are great non-invasive approaches to uh, treating Everything using everything from ketogenic diet to 
uh, deep breathing techniques to meditation to vagus nerve stimulation. All of these things have the ability to modulate the autonomic nervous system and through that modulating the innate immune system, which has pleiotropic benefits. Thank you. And uh, for anybody who's listening till the end, thank you so much for listening for staying until the end. And please feel free to share this podcast with anybody who you think could use this information to help upgrade their health. Thanks so much. <laughs>